It's Mark 1, 1 to 13, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of his sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We're going to spend the next little while reflecting on this text together. Well, do you know the first line of the book 1984 by George Orwell, what it is? Any, any literary nerds out there who could recite it from memory? Well, it goes like this. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Now, what makes that line so brilliant, at least you know, in my humble opinion, is that Orwell immediately introduces you to a world that is similar to our own, and yet is different. It's off-kilter somehow, because we too have bright, cold April days, sort of like today, but our clocks don't strike 13. Now you're like, I live in Quebec, and my clock does go to 13, or I'm a military person. Yeah, just, you know, hold on for a second. You got to get the point. We have clocks that go to 12, uh, and, and they go around and around in that fashion. And of course, if you know 1984, Orwell is trying to introduce you to this dystopian world where time itself is being manipulated by the government, and we've always been at war with East Asia, you know, and all the rest. Orwell can distill the, the new world of his imagining into this single introductory line before kind of plunging into the story. And I'd submit to you that is what's going on with the Gospel of Mark. Unlike the other Gospels, there's no birth stories, there's no childhood, Mary, Joseph, the angels, none of them appear. There's no philosophical treatise uh, of Jesus being the divine word behind everything like John does. All we have is a sentence and a prophecy, and then we are plunged into the story, the barest outline of this new world, and then we just kind of start living in it, like, okay, what's going to happen next? And, and if you are unfamiliar with the Gospel of Mark, you should know Mark's the shortest Gospel. It's written in a simple, terse, pithy, and condensed style. Mark is really my kind of writer. If you, if you know me and my personality, I really like him. Uh, and more than anything else, Mark is trying to tell us about the works of Jesus. Whereas other gospel writers tend to focus or have a bit more on, on his words, especially John, what he said, um, Mark is interested in what Jesus is doing. What are the places he's going? Uh, who is he healing? 
all that kind of stuff. And so without much further ado, I want to jump into his gospel. I want to look at that introduction in verses 1 through 3, but then he kind of quickly skips through three other events that really precede the formal beginning of Jesus' ministry. Next week, if you're here, uh, Frank, you'll be talking about what's the first thing Jesus goes to do after this kind of preparatory phase. But four headings for today, if you want to follow along. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What What does that mean? And then I want to skip through the messenger, the baptism, and the temptation. But verse 1 reads like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want to unpack some of those terms, because if you're a church person, you're like, those feel familiar, but sometimes we forget what they actually mean. First, gospel. What, what does that mean? Well, we often use it like an adjective, like gospel music or something, but gospel just is literally translated good news. More than a simple announcement of good news, though, when Mark is using this word, he's actually inventing a literary genre. A gospel account in Mark's day was basically a new kind of literature. There's a few kind of odd examples here and there in the Roman world, but it's really the disciples and the apostles who who pick up this sort of genre and begin using it to talk about what Christ did. Uh, Most religious accounts in the first century Roman Empire were oral traditions, you know, stories they told generation to generation with the main exception being the Jewish writings, of course. But when Jesus came along and he did all the things he did, the disciples were like, we have to find a way to tell this story, to write it down. And they landed on this Greek word that means good news. But the literary form of gospel, a gospel account, is a long written story about the works and the words of Jesus. And so on our church, it may be confusing because we use the word gospel in both ways. Sometimes we use it to refer to the gospel accounts. You know, gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But you also hear us use the word to mean a shorter summary of what Christ has done. We'll say things like, believe the gospel, or live according to the gospel. And by that we mean sort of a short summary of what Christ has done, the good news of Jesus. So we use it in both ways. But what Mark is embarking on is the literary journey, this first one, to tell us, what did Jesus say, what did Jesus do? Now speaking of this Jesus... Mark refers to him as Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned this before, but Christ is not a last name. It's not a nickname. It means anointed one or chosen one uh, or even the Messiah. And maybe now you can understand why we chose that passage uh, from, from David's life about the anointing there too. Even here in the opening sentence, Mark is signaling to us this gospel account is about Jesus who is the long promised one, the chosen one, uh, the, the prophesied about one. And additionally, he's the son of God. Mark's gospel account has a definite emphasis on the divinity of Jesus. And right here in the opening uh, sentence, he's like, Jesus is no ordinary man. He's not the son of Joseph. He's not the son of, of, of Nazarenes. He is the son of God. He has divine origin. And this is reinforced by the, the quote in verse 3, that this messenger who's going to be crying in the wilderness is telling the people to prepare the way of the Lord. Not prepare the way for a prophet or or a human king, but that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is the Lord. This is the God who must be prepared for. So what world is Mark introducing us to in this first sentence? He says, this is the good news story about Jesus, the chosen one, Son of God, who is in fact really and truly God, and he is coming. Now, one other little note here that I think will be helpful to understanding Mark the quote in verse 2 and verse 3, it's actually a, a, melding of, of two different, um, a melding of two different prophets, Isaiah and Malachi. But it's the only time that Mark ever quotes Scripture. Sometimes he'll record Jesus quoting Scripture or Pharisees quoting the Old Testament. But this is the only time Mark the narrator does. 
Now, why is that significant? Well, it tells us that Mark's audience, whoever he was writing to, doesn't really know or possibly doesn't even care about the Old Testament, which means, in turn, you know, let's do some deductive reasoning, they probably aren't Jewish or they aren't very Jewish. And from what we can piece together, Mark likely wrote this gospel account from Rome in the mid to late 50s, and he had just a very wide audience in mind. He's thinking of all these new Gentile Christians or people who live in in Rome or even further afield, far from Israel, that didn't understand Israel, didn't know the, the, the religious tradition. Mark is saying, you don't need to know, you don't need to have any background to understand what I'm talking about which makes this book very accessible for people who are new to church, people who don't know much about Jesus or haven't made up your mind about him. If that's you, that's you this morning, like Mark's your guy. He's writing with people like you in mind. And if, if, even if you are a person, you've been around church a long time, you're deeply familiar with the Old Testament, you're not going to lose out. You should just know Mark's not going to make any assumptions about what you do or do not know. He's going to plainly set before you the whole story. But that leads us to part two, the messenger. So in verses 2 and 3, Mark actually quotes, as I said, part of Isaiah, part of Malachi. But the important thing he's saying there is that before Jesus comes, there will be a messenger. There will be someone who comes before the face of the people of Israel, crying in the wilderness, telling them to prepare themselves for the Lord. Now, why do they need to be prepared? Well, basically, because they're not in fit condition to meet the king of kings. You know, technically, we still have royals in Canada. There's been some rumblings that we might not at some point. But think for a moment if, uh, you know, Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, and Princess Kate, Duchess of Cambridge, they're going to make a royal visit to Ottawa or to the Gatineau area or or wherever you live. Now, for some odd reason, they're like, hey, I'm going to swing by your house for a cup of tea uh, at some point during the visit. Now, how would you prepare your home or your apartment, whatever you live in, how would you prepare for such an occasion? Well, there'd be cleaning, there'd be, there'd be tidying and straightening, unlike anything that had ever happened in your place before. Maybe there'd be repainting, redecorating, you know, fresh flowers, extra special treats, you know, the best of whatever you can get your hands on, and, and, your, and your nicest clothes laid out. If the royals were visiting you in your home, you'd do everything in your power so that that visit was successful and good. Now, in the same way, if God were visiting you, He's not just going to see your house and your furniture and your driveway or whatever. He's going to see you on the inside. So you don't just need to run the vacuum around and and do some sweeping. You also have to figure out how to clean yourself on the inside. Because he's actually going to look more carefully at the inside part of you than even the house you live in. See, why is a messenger needed to tell the people that God is on the way? Because they are unclean. They need need a tidying. They They need interior work. They're not ready for royalty to come. They're not ready for the king of everything and everywhere to show up in their midst. See, if you look at verse 4, what message is John preaching? It says he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, you need internal straightening. You need internal cleaning. On the inside, you're, you're full of sin. You need to be set right because God is coming. That's why the messenger John appears to give them this message. He's on the way. Turn from your sin. Get your soul in order before he arrives. Now let's talk about this baptism thing for a minute. Baptism was a kind of a strange thing for Jews to be participating in. It was a part of Judaism, but it was actually normally reserved for new converts. Not not all the time. There's a few examples, but that's the normal use case. If If an adult converted to Judaism, they'd often be baptized. But that's not what John was teaching. 
That's not the kind of baptism he's prescribing. It's not a baptism of of conversion. He said it's a baptism of repentance. So what he's doing is he's telling the Jews, you may be a Jew externally, but you aren't really part of the people of God on the inside. Your heart's not in it. You need to be baptized, uh, like again, you need to be baptized so that you kind of become a, a real Jew on the inside for the first time. Look at your internal state. And look at where he's doing the baptisms. He's out in the wilderness. Now, if you know any of the history of the people of God, the wilderness is extremely important to them. For in Egypt, it's when Israel became a nation where they kind of grew beyond a a family into a sort of a giant group of people. When they leave Israel, they're saved sort of by this sort of a, a strange kind of baptism. It's what Corinthians calls it. In the Red Sea where they didn't get wet but were baptized anyways. And then they are led from the Red Sea into the wilderness. Why? Because they weren't ready to inherit the promised land. They had all these old habits to get rid of, all these old, uh, this lack of trust in God. They needed to be cleansed of their defilement in the wilderness. And now look at what's happening. The people of Israel, they're being called back into the wilderness to be baptized again and to turn from their sins. And verse 5 tells us, all the country of Judea, that's like the whole, the whole region, and all Jerusalem, the biggest city, they're all going out to be baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This John guy was immensely popular long before megachurches. You know, this guy had thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people coming to his ministry in the wilderness. He's not conveniently located, you know, just off the highway next to the Walmart or whatever. Like, he was really hard to get to. He's like, he's like way out of town somewhere, and you have to walk. And he's anything but a megachurch pastor. If you look in verse 6, he's wearing the clothes of the poorest of the poor, He's eating the food of a beggar. This whole description doesn't sound like much to us, but we don't have some of the natural or national history that, that Israel had. Think about it this way. Let's say you were walking down your street, and suddenly a person rides up on a horse, and they are wearing blue dress pants with a yellow stripe down the side, and they have the blood-red shirt on, neck-high collar, a wide-brimmed brown hat with a very stiff brim. Well, you'd say, I know what that person is. That's a Mountie. If you've grown up in Canada, that's embedded into our cultural history. Anyone who's dressed like that, I I know what they are. In the same way to an Israelite, a man who lives in the wilderness, wears camel's hair clothing and a simple belt, eating, eating bugs and honey, locusts and honey, it would have instantly reminded all the Israelites of their most famous prophet, Elijah. That's, that's how he's described. Say, oh, I know who that is. I know what kind of f- mold uh, uh, John is trying to be. John is one of these old prophets sort of sprung to life, stepping out of the history books. And indeed, the Bible says he's the last prophet in the Old Testament style. He's calling the people to repentance. And right here, he's making a prophecy about what's to come. He tells the people, I am preparing the way for someone far mightier than me. Someone who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Now, just sit on that for a moment. John was the most popular preacher and prophet that Israel had seen for hundreds of years. Canada's not even hundreds of years old. And and this guy, it's been hundreds of years since they've heard from God. And he's drawing huge crowds and people are being baptized. And it's sort of like this national revival is breaking out. And then he says, there is one coming who will so far outdo me, I can't even lace up his sandals. And if you think these water baptisms are something, wait until he sends the Holy Spirit. See, why is this section part of the prologue? 
Because Mark is giving us this inside info about Jesus. It's not going to be, most of the characters we're going to meet in the, in the, in the weeks to come, um, they'll be wondering about Jesus. They won't know what to make of him. <laughs> They're like, who, who is he? But right now Mark is telling us he's mightier than John. He's a sender of the spirit. He is the one for whom the way is being prepared. But that leads us to part three, the baptism. Now comes one of the more confusing things I think Jesus does in, in all of his ministry, at least, at least to me. It's one that's kind of widely misunderstood by many church people. It says, in those days, a.k.a. the days that John uh, were, you know, was teaching and baptizing, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus just appears, <laughs> like, like fully formed. He has given no pedigree. There's no long list of ancestors like Matthew, no background. All we are told is, oh, he's Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth was a backwards place. Nowhere place. It was the butt of jokes. That's all we're told of Jesus. And he says he comes to John to be baptized. Now that's confusing, and here's why. Historic Christian teaching has held that Jesus never committed any sin. Son of God, he lived a perfect life. That's the whole reason why we believe his death on the cross was sort of enough. But what was John's baptism for? It was a baptism of repentance. It was to make a defiled people clean. It was, it was to get ready because the king of glory is coming. So why is Jesus being baptized? He doesn't need to be made clean. And Mark doesn't tell us. <laughs> Mark's like, he's like, and he was baptized. And then he like immediately moves on. And we're like, wait a second, what, what's going on? Now, I think we can figure this out. If it wasn't for repentance, I think there are three, three main options First option is this. Jesus was baptized because as the anointed one, he is going to be bearing the sins of the people. And if he's going to do that, he must identify with them. He must in some ways unite with them. And so he's being baptized sort of as part of his mission as the, as the anointed one. Your second option is that by being baptized, Jesus is putting his stamp of approval on John's role as messenger. By letting John baptize him, he's saying, hey, what you are doing, it's legitimate. You are the, you are the messenger. The third option Similar to the first one, it shows that Jesus is the new Israel, that he is beginning his journey as the chosen one by entering the land through the waters of the Jordan, just like Israel had, and, but he will live out the obedience Israel always should have. So which is it? Is it identifying with the people? Is it approving of John's ministry? Is it living out his role as the new Israel? It's probably all of them, frankly. <laughs> you might have a favorite. You're like, I think this is the main one. That's fine. You can have a favorite. Mark doesn't feel the need to tell us. All we know is it cannot be a baptism of repentance because Jesus had nothing to, re be re to repent of. He was the king being prepared for. And so, by, uh, so I think, by the way, that this means having Jesus as a model for Christian baptism doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I've heard some Christians argue that, oh, we should be baptized because Jesus was baptized. Which is like, uh, maybe there's a little bit of merit to it, but Jesus is being baptized for very different reasons than any of us would be. When a person comes to believe in Jesus and is baptized, you know, as a teenager or as an adult or whatever, it's a baptism of, of repentance. It's saying, I'm, I'm turning from my sin. I'm, I'm joining God's people. I'm turning to Christ. Well, that's different reasons than what Christ had. Now, perhaps you can argue it's all obedience to the Father or something. I, I just think there are plenty of reasons a Christian should be baptized, and I don't think this needs to be one of them. But that's a side point. You can argue with me after, the, after church if you have something I haven't thought of. But if Mark isn't focusing on the reason Jesus was baptized, what does he focus on? Well, look at verse 10. He tells us immediately after the baptism, the heavens are torn open, 
and the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven tells Jesus he's the beloved Son, and the Father is well pleased with him. What do, what do we make of this? Whatever the baptism meant, it was pleasing to the Father, and something special is happening with Jesus' relationship to the Spirit. This is a moment when something is changing for Jesus. In fact, the word Mark uses when he says the heavens are torn open, it's this word uh, schizo, which, which we, we get our own word schism from. It's a word that means I am breaking something such that it's nearly impossible to put it back together. Mark is saying, the heavens have been ripped open, and they're not going to be easily shut. So I think we should understand, in the baptism of Jesus, he is embarking on his true mission and calling. See, we think Jesus was 30 years old when he began his ministry, which means for a long time he'd labored as a carpenter. We think his father had died by this point, presumably taking care of his mother and the other younger siblings. But for whatever reason, the time is now full, the time is ripe for him to leave that life behind. And going back to the prophecy uh, and the messenger, I think this baptism signals to us the triune God is on the move. The Father is sending, the Spirit is descending, the Son is coming up from the Jordan to seek and to save the lost. And if we could paraphrase J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the board is set, the pieces are moving, a plan has been set into motion by this baptism that cannot easily be undone. The, the heavens have been torn open and the Lord is coming to Israel the Spirit is filling, the Father is pleased, and Jesus is on his mission. This baptism of Jesus signals a new phase is beginning. All right, part four, the temptation. Now you'd think, at least I would think, because this great rescue is beginning, because God's on the move, that immediately Jesus would start doing, you know, Jesus stuff. You know, heal someone, teach something, you know, turn over some tables in a temple somewhere or something. But that's not what happens. It says, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And Mark uses such great sort of Greek language, but it almost suggests that Jesus is being like hurled into the wilderness, like, the, like tossed out there by the Spirit. And the wilderness is lonely, and it's dangerous, and it's filled with wild animals and spiritual beings. There's angels and demons, and Satan is tempting him, and, and angels are there ministering to him. And again, notice... Mark is interested in the works of Jesus, so he doesn't even tell us why he's there. <laughs> other, other gospel writers, when you read them, they're like, here are the temptations, here's what happened, here's a conversation Jesus had. They talk about why he's in the wilderness in the first place. All Mark tells us is, this is where the Spirit wants him. See, Jesus must be tempted in the wilderness the way the people of God were tempted. He's got to get hungry, he's got to get thirsty to see if he would crumble the way the Israelites of old did, and of course he didn't. Jesus needed to be in the wilderness to see if the lies whispered to him by Satan would change his mind the way that Adam and Eve's mind were changed by Satan's lies all those years before. You see, what we have when we look through the Bible, it's not exactly a history of heroes. Though, of course, some people in the Bible did heroic deeds. But the whole Bible is a history of people who need a savior. Because Israel, they failed the test in the desert. They grumbled against God. Adam and Eve failed the test in the garden. They, they wanted to be like God instead of worship him. And as you read, it's like, well, Adam, what, not good enough? Abraham, not good enough. Moses, not good enough. David, not good enough. Solomon, you know, on and on. Every one of them needed a savior. That's the history of the Bible. And now finally, the way has been prepared for the Lord himself. The only one who can save 
And he's being tempted by Satan in the same way that we all are and yet was without sin. So the messenger has come. The way is being prepared. The baptism has been baptized. The temptation in the desert overcome. And Jesus is ready to begin his ministry to the people he was born to save. Now finally, what do we do with a text like this? Imagine you're sitting around a small group, you know, someone's, someone's living room, sipping coffee or tea or whatever, and uh, you've, read the, you've read this text together, and the leader says, well, how should we apply this to our lives? And people around the circle begin to suggest different applications. Someone says, oh, maybe we should all be baptized, you know, if, if we haven't yet. And another says, well, I think we should apply this by, we should be filled with the Spirit, because Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Another person says, well, maybe we should be trying to prepare the way for Jesus to come on our street or, or my apartment building or whatever. And another says, oh, no, no, actually what we need to do is go commune with God in the wilderness, just like Jesus. He's setting, setting an example for us. And look, all those activities, all those uh, applications, they're good things. There's nothing wrong with them, but I don't think they're what this passage is about. It's good to be baptized. We're in favor, you know. It's good to be full of God's spirit. Yes, good, you know, thumbs up. It's good to commune with God in the wilderness. Yes, that's not why Mark wrote this down for us. Mark wrote this down because he's telling us there's one more powerful than John who gives a spirit, who's approved of by heaven, who's been tested by Satan and has overcome. And that Christ, that anointed one, is the savior of men, women, and children just like us. Mark is writing this down so you'll believe in Jesus. Just like George Orwell, Mark is saying, welcome to a new world. It's a whole new day. I'm giving you this behind-the-scenes information so that as you watch Jesus teach and heal, you'll understand what he's doing. So the question before us is simple, but not necessarily easy. It's just, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? What does it mean to believe it means to entrust yourself to him. Now, I want to tell you something. As you'll hear in the announcements, and you've heard a few weeks, the past few weeks, I go on sabbatical tomorrow. <laughs> My last day of work right now, right here. Part of me is very glad for that, of course, very thankful for it. I'm ready for my, my life and ministry to sort of lie fallow for a while so it can be rehabilitated and refreshed and all those things. But there's another part of me. That's one part of me. There's another part of me that's, that's worried and filled with doubt. Because I realize that going on sabbatical involves me believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in a different way. That he'll take care of our church. He'll take care of all of you. He'll take care of me when I'm, when I'm not being a pastor. Believing that, that, that you and I in this church, that we really belong to him. There's like a dozen things I can list that are saying, I, I need to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, again in this situation. And I bet it's not just me. What about you? In what area are you called to believe again? Is it a sin you're dealing with? Is it a situation you're having trouble entrusting to him? A desire you just can't stop desiring? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came. That people like you and me, we might believe in him and have life in his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we are grateful that, that you have called us, that you have come, that we might, we might know you and believe in you. Thank you for the gospel of Mark, which explains to us, which teaches us about you and what you are doing in the world. May we believe. Whatever situation we're facing, may we believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.